0: This is Ralph Carhart, the author of The Hallball, and you are listening to Baseball and Barbecue.
1: Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away.
2: welcome to episode number 69 of baseball and bbq the bbq stands for barbecue i'm here with my incredible co-host
3: jeff cohen and i'm here with my incredible co-host
2: len aberman jeff we have a great episode for everybody we have a couple of really great guests and we're going to we're going to go into that in just a moment people need to just hold on. We're going to get to who our guests are, but I just want to quickly get to something that unfortunately we just learned about. I was all ready to take this episode in a different direction. I was going to go off on a little tangent, talk about something, but it seems so unimportant right now because unfortunately we just found out that your idol, my idol, Tom Seaver, unfortunately, just passed away. So, Jeff, why don't you talk a little bit about that?
3: Thank you, Len. We're recording it on September 2nd, and Tom Seaver passed away at age 75. He was, no question, the greatest Mets player who ever put on a, a uniform. He was just the, the best. They called him the franchise, Tom Terrific. I remember going to many games, with Tom Seaver pitched, and it was just just fantastic, all of them. He was, like you said, my idol, your idol. I remember actually being at Yankee Stadium when he won his 300th game. That was a, a special day. He, he is, you know, just no words to say. He, he was just simply the best, near unanimous Hall of Famer, and, you know, he will be remembered a long time in, in, in the history of not just New York Mets, but, but baseball. It's a very sad day.
2: One of the greatest pitchers to ever pitch. Definitely one of the greatest. Just amazing. And I, I just, we knew he was sick. It was no secret. He wasn't doing any interviews uh, anymore. You know, his, his family uh, asked everyone to respect his privacy. You knew he was sick. But I guess you never, especially when you don't, we didn't hear any reports. And so you really don't know his condition but very very sad
4: yes very sad
2: anyway we send our our condolences to his family of course and anyone who uh was a fan of his to so all baseball fans and this episode though we do have two incredible guests one which kind of i mean it it he he did play for the Mets, he was uh, an icon in New York, another New York icon. None other than we don't have Willie Mays, <laughs> don't get <rid> of him, <laughs> all right, but we do have John Shea, who wrote the book, the incredible book 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid.
3: He wrote it with Willie Mays,
2: that's right. So, that's almost like I once went on a, uh, a tour in Rome and the person that was giving the tour told us that she had sh- shaken the hand of the Pope. So she said, does anybody want to touch my hand because I right. touched touch the Pope's hand. So right. he spent all this time interviewing Willie Mays and speaking to people that have been close to Willie Mays, that have interacted with Willie Mays, and John Shea was fantastic. It enjoyed so much. There. You know, the the authors that we've had on have just been incredible and John Shay amazing. He's he's also of course a member of the uh, Pandemic Baseball Book Club which we love to support. And then after John we have a barbecue guest. And you know I I not even he originally came on thinking he was a barbecue guest, but it turns out he's as much a baseball lover, I think, as a barbecue lover. And that is none other than Doug Shining, who is from uh, the Road Cookers competition team. He's a representative for Traeger Grills. He's a representative for Head Country, barbecue products, sauces and rubs and, and all the things they have. He's also an embedded correspondent on the Barbecue Central show. Not only that, but he's a rocket scientist. The first one that we've had on, maybe the last one we'll ever have on. Right. Just a fantastic guy. So we really lucked out because the episode has two fantastic guests and I really think that our listeners are gonna just love this episode.
3: Great. And with that, let's get to John Shea. Say,
2: Willie,
4: say, hey, say who, swinging at the plate, say, hey, say who, say, Willie, that giant kid is great.
3: Covering baseball for four decades, John Shea is an award winning national baseball columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. He has seen regularly on the MLB network. He has written several books, including the autobiography of Hall of Famer Ricky Henderson called Off-Base Confessions of a Thief. Also, co authored Magic by the Bay, how the San Francisco Giants and Oakland Athletics captured the baseball world. His newest collaboration is one, is with none other than the great Willie Mays, who may very well be the greatest baseball player to ever put on a uniform. 24, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid is a wonderful book on the inspirations and influences in the life of Willie Mays. John Shea takes time out of his busy day to talk to us about this wonderful book and his relationship with number 24. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, John Shea. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Welcome, John. John, Thanks. I, I want to I get started on the day of May 14, 1972, which is May's first game as a New York Met because I was at that game. I was 10 years old. I was there with my father and grandfather in the Loge section of Shea Stadium. And I remember that game-winning home run Willie Mays hit. Into the left field bullpen. Uh, coming to New, coming back to New York was should have been was quite a thrill for Willie Mays, wasn't it?
0: Well, it was. Although looking back, he said, you know, you wish you would have been with the same team throughout the career. That's pretty rare. You know, lately, what Tony Gwynn, Cal Ripken, Derek Jeter. I mean, there, it, it's far. It, especially for Hall of Famers, stick around a long time. You just don't see it. And even if teams move. You don't have any control out of you know over that. And if you're traded, of course, you don't have any control. You know the same same thing with Hank Aaron. He finished uh, his last two years with the Brewers, so it, it's pretty parallel actually. Him going to Milwaukee and Willie going back to New York. But it's it was expected because there were rumors, but it was kind of bittersweet. Yeah, he would love to retire a Giant, but he called New York home, man. So that's where it all begin began, and that's where he. You know, played with the kids in Harlem. It's where he made his famous catch. Uh, you know, he knew the nightclubs. He knew, you know, the places to go and uh, the sights to see. The, I mean, you know, they weren't they weren't going to play in the Polo Grounds for very long. But you know, Shea Stadium was around by the time Willie came back. So he, he said he really enjoyed his last two years as the Met. The first year much better than the uh, second because the second was a 22, 22nd season. And the first time in his career, he went on the disabled list. Right, but also he, he the first his first year in the major leagues,
3: and his last year in the major leagues, uh, both ended in the World Series. And That's it was true. Nice of him to go out and, on, on top. Well, even though the Mets lost the World Series that year, he went. He was in the World
0: Series. That was great. And they lost in fifty-one too. His only World Series win, fifty-four. Fifty-four. Right. Set the momentum for the sweep of the mighty Indians. You know, years later, he, he, he lost in 62, seven games against the Yankees, and then 73. So that's four World Series. So I'd like to say he played five because he played in the final Negro League World right. Series in 1948 as a member and center fielder of the uh, the great uh, Birmingham Barons.
2: True. John, you, you've been around baseball players your career, but reading this, it seems like – Every, all these players, all these people that encounter Willie Mays um, are in awe in the fact they're, they're meeting their idol. How long did it take you before you got over the fact, I'm sitting with Willie Mays? I'm writing a book about Willie Mays. How long did it take for that to wear off a little bit?
0: Yeah, probably never. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, we
0: spent an awful lot of time together. We, we did the math and we figured over 100 hours. And this goes back several years and it, it yeah, yeah, you pinch yourself. You're amazed. You're thinking one time he was actually talking with Hank Aaron on the phone and I'm looking around and so who doesn't belong in this picture, right? <laughs> <laughs> the greatest players, man, maybe of all time, who knows. But from back to his Negro League days with Bill Greeson, a pitcher on that black Blackburns team to uh, childhood buddies to, to, uh, to players he broke in with, played in the minor leagues with, uh, served in the military with, interviewed a couple of presidents, musicians, artists, and more than 200 in all the interview process. So everybody has a Willie Mays story. You could just pull off anybody from the street and he'd, he'd tell you about Willie Mays. It's unbelievable.
3: Len hasn't a yeah. Willie Mays story because he worked with Charlie
2: Williams' wife, who was uh, Charlie Williams traded for for Willie Mays. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, I've, I've got that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I worked with Bonnie Williams. That's true. Okay. Yeah, her husband. Right. So that that was a strange story. I mean,
0: you, your life is known as a guy who was who's who's traded for Willie Mays. Well, Charlie Williams was the pitcher, right? right. And exactly. Pitcher and you know, just somebody to fill out the pitching staff. But that's that's something, that's some pressure, right? I mean, it's like Buck Hans, who was supposed to be the next Maze. That's a different kind of pressure. And, you know, this this young pitcher is, is straight as one coast to the other because the other team wanted Maze, and you're the guy.
2: Right. John, how long did it take, this, this whole process, the book, to from beginning to end?
0: Well, I asked him about 15 years ago about a book project, and he said he'd like to see it in classrooms. So right away, there was interest, and right away, there was passion, and he remained engaged throughout the process. And it really kicked in, you know, in the past several years. And in the years beyond 15 years ago, I spent much of my time interviewing people. And, you know, many of those have passed. You know, Elvin Dark, for instance, you know, several hours with him. For the purpose of the book. And that was the manager he had in the early 60s in San Francisco, but also his teammate in New York, uh, the man who made Willie the first African-American captain in baseball history. So, you know, others along the way, most recently, folks who have passed, you know, Frank Robinson, Willie McCovey, Peter McGowan, the former Giants owner, you know, and many others, uh, Lon Simmons, the broadcaster, Bob Stevens, the sports writer, you know, all the way up until Mike Trout and some of his players. And Trout obviously is compared to Mantle, compared to Mays for the five tool prominence, being able to do all of the tools on the field well at a high level. So it was an unbelievable experience because everybody, like I said, had a Willie Mays story and you just didn't get people to say, no, I don't want to talk.
2: Well, he was actually a six tool player, which you go into in the book, right. which I thought was, was quite interesting. It was his mind. He had a great baseball mind.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is well before the technology of today and the metrics that we use and the video and the scouting techniques. And it was up here for him. And he he envisioned, he anticipated position teammates. And I spoke spoke with uh, former teammates who talked about him like Marichal and Perry Kayla, Harry, Juan, Mariselle, who met with them before games. They called them. They called it the three-minute meeting, in which he go over the lineup, what's working in the bullpen. Here's here's how I'm going to shade these guys. You know, all the way up to you know the shortstops through the years, who were kind of the captain of the infield and a's the outfield. But really, they looked at this guy as the manager of the team, in a lot of on field manager, who was just the step above everybody else. It's it's like you know, man on second, uh, Willie's on second. The guy hits a, a a single up the middle. And Willie ran just fast enough or just slow enough to draw a throw to the plate so so the trade runner would, would advance to second base and Willie knew he was going to be safe along at the plate. So just a just those little things that people think you know couldn't imagine now, he, he seemed to do on a regular basis. So let's go back to his, his
3: childhood. He, he was in Alabama, born in Alabama, raised by his father and, and his aunts. He had a very strong relationship with his father. And he, he, he mentioned that he was, even though he didn't have a lot of money. He wasn't deprived of anything. He had food, clothes, place to, place to go, place to play ball. How, how was his relationship with his dad?
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's it basically was living in poverty. Jim Crow era, deep south, born in Great Depression and raised therein as well, but his parents were young. They didn't stay together. His dad, Willie May, Howard May Sr., played ball, center fielder, smaller than Willie became, but quick as, as can be, a leadoff guy who butted, got on base, stole bases, nicknamed Cat. And he did a lot for Willie, obviously, baseball, but he did his best being around, couldn't be around all the time, because he worked in trains, he worked in the mills, he played ball to put money in his pocket. It was his mother's sisters who raised him for the most part. And this was first in Westfield, Alabama, which is no longer there, and then in neighboring Fairfield, Alabama. And I went back to visit for about a week to check out his roots and speak with people he knew and visiting the old neighborhood and such. And the old ball field, by the way, Rickwood Field, Built in 1910, the oldest professional ballpark still in existence. I, you should go. It, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's still used today by high schools and colleges. And that's where the Black Barons played. That's where Willie played professionally for three seasons before the Giants signed him. But you're right, he didn't have much, but he made the best of it. He didn't complain about what he didn't have, but he just took advantage of what he did have. And that went out, that went through his whole life and career. If you you know think about it, he played in the polo grounds and candlestick. They are really not conducive to, to hitting six home runs. But actually, what, like 482 to dead center at the polo grounds and the, the crazy wind at candlestick that would blow balls down if any ball was hit in the, in the air in the left field. So he adjusted and learned how to hit to right center and go opposite field and found a home home run stroke that way. So, you know, he never complained about his upbringing or maybe drawbacks that he had along the way, but he tried to make the best of it. And that's, I guess, a lesson in itself as part of this book.
3: Sure. His mother had went on to have 10 more children. Is he keeping in touch with any of his brothers or sisters? Are they still around?
0: Not really. See, she did do that. But by then, you know, she was with another man um not Willie's dad so willie actually spent more time with willie's aunts than than willie's m- mother mm-hmm. while while he had a you know she was always in his heart but you know that would never leave you and she died quite um uh, while giving birth to the the final child um,
2: right the 11th right when she was only 37
0: right right yeah. so she saw him in Birmingham and a little bit in the minors in New York but yeah you know, she wasn't around like Willie's dad lived into his 90s so
4: mm-hmm.
0: Willie's dad was always around he came to New York with them he came to the bay area with them and he always made sure to call you know the, the managers early in Willie's career whether it was Birmingham or Trenton or Minneapolis the two farm teams of the giants or even New York when he would call Monty Irvin, the great Negro leaguer who uh, was Willie's first roommate with the New York Giants in 51. So so Willie's dad was always there for him, always looking out for him. And that's one reason Willie says now that he kind of took the right path in life. You know, Mickey Mantle and some some of those Yankees across the river mm-hmm. didn't live the same lifestyle as Willie. You know, Willie right. you know, later acknowledged that, you know, it cost him years in his career and years in his life. Mm-hmm. Right, Willie never picked up a drink
3: except for winning those, uh, going the World Series. That's why yep. I found very interesting in, in the book. The book is called Twenty Four Life Lessons and, and Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. John, he got gets to New York. His manager is Leo Durocher, and some I see in here. It, he says it's a perfect fit. his son Leo Durocher's son said it was a perfect fit for those two to to uh, get together. How
0: so? Well, Willie keeps saying this. He never hollered at me. I I, I don't know if I would use the term babied him, but was very protective of him. And this is, you know, Willie Mays, who went from the Negro Leagues, you know, great comfort zone. All these older gentlemen looking out for him on the road or at home, telling him where to hang out and where not to hang out. And He could rely on these fellas. And then the Giants sign him and he's he's uh, assigned to uh, Trenton. In the uh, Class B Interstate League, and he's the only man of color in the entire league. So it, he just graduated from high school. Imagine the culture shock. Sure. And this is years after Jackie Robinson broke into the big leagues. So Willie was hearing a lot of the same things Jackie was hearing. But you know, luckily it didn't you know deter him, uh, Detour him, and he, he he kept pushing and wouldn't let the bigots win and. You know, became the great man and ball player he became. But uh yeah, it was it was tough for him in those early years. But but Leo, he got to New York and struggled. I mean, he, he was hitting 477 in Minneapolis in his second professional season with the Giants. And this was late May. And Leo gives him a call and says, We need you. And Willie says, What do you mean? I'm fine here. <laughs> he says, oh, we need you here. We're, we're we're like 17 to 19. You remember that was the year that they just went crazy and overtook the Dodgers in the final day. And Bobby uh, Thompson hit his home run off Ralph Branca. But that was the year Willie got called up as a rookie. And, you know, at first he didn't want to go because he was so comfortable. Unlike in Trenton, where he was hearing stuff he didn't want to hear, he finally felt more comfortable with the integrated Minneapolis club. And the fans loved him there. And so he got he gets called up to New York. goes was 0 for 12, 1 for 25, crying out at his locker. And he said, Leo, this is too fast for me, man. I, you know, I, I, I don't belong. And imagine Willie May saying that. Yeah. And Lee said, listen, you're our guy. You're always going to be our guy. We just need you to play center field like you're playing. And you'll eventually hit. And sure enough, that's when he kind of took off at the plate. And, you know, went on to the career he he uh, he enjoyed. But he always thought of Leo as his favorite manager. Nobody else came close. I mean, there were some... There, Alvin Dark, like I said, made him the first African-American captain. Alvin mm-hmm. um, Franks in the late 60s, he, he liked, in fact, Alvin kind of introduced him to the financial world. Uh, you know, Willie played in a time with no free agency, no agents. You had to uh, your own contract. You had to negotiate. And the most he ever made was $165,000. So Alvin so kind of helped set him up. Um, Elvin Frank's uh, Herman Frank's. I'm sorry. Helped set him up in the late 60s there. So he really uh, he liked him for
2: other reasons. But but nobody compared to Leo. The book is great. It's divided. I, I love how it's his numbers 24. You've got 24 chapters. In each chapter, Willie speaks, tells a story or whatever, and then you go more into it, more details, and it's just. The stories that the things you learn about uh, just the four home run game that and, and here's where we can relate, because he had bad ribs the night before. Right. He had <laughs> ribs <laughs> and I've cooked some bad ribs as part of barbecue a few times. <laughs> who knew that I could help a player uh, hit four home runs, but he, he wasn't going to play that game. And uh, I forget who it was that that talked him into it, I guess. Right? Uh, Somebody on the team. I forget the guy's name.
0: Joey Malfitano.
2: Right. Talked him into it.
0: You know, who was a backup, you know, later became a coach and a manager. And the third base coach when Kurt Gibson hit his home run against Dennis Eckersley in game one of the 88 series. And uh, I think the second-to-last man in Sandy Koufax's perfect game, and uh he was he seemed to be everywhere and he was there when when willie made the catch in 54 he was in the bullpen warming up some guys remember the polo grounds it was so big and vast that they could position the bullpens out in left center and right center so willie goes out to a little bit to the right of dead center and not far away was was joey malfitano uh, warming up guys in the, in the bullpen so anyway. The greatest game in Willie's career was in Milwaukee when he hit the four home runs. But he wasn't supposed to play that day because, like you said, he and McCovey went out the night before. It didn't affect McCovey, but Mays was up all night and needed the trainer and he was throwing up. And, you know, he played every game back then. I mean, he played 150 games, 13 straight years, which is a record that still stands. And nobody's ever going to break that. A lot of that streak came game during the 154-game season. Right. So Mays never was out of the lineup. So it was like a news flash. Mays not playing, really? And so they're in Milwaukee, and he's sitting in the dugout, and Amalfitano comes up to him and says, try this bat. And Willie said, what, what do you mean, Louie? He called him Louie. He says, I'm, I'm not even playing. So just try this bat. It's a lighter bat. So I said, okay. So we went up to take some BP, and everything he hit went over the wall, you know, swing after swing after swing. And then, Went to Alvin Dark and told him, you know what, I'm playing after all. <laughs> so right. Maze was in a run, home run, home run, home run. And then he was on deck on the top of the ninth when Jim Davenport made the final out. He could have had a chance for a fifth. In fact, he said the ball that was hardest hit was the only out he made. You know, right. long fly ball Aaron in center field. So... So without without uh, Amalfitano's help, we would never have known about this four home run game in Milwaukee.
3: You know, he says about hitting home runs, it's not the ballpark, it's the pitcher. I don't care how big the ballpark is. If I get the right pitch, I can hit it out of any ballpark. I'll focus more on the pitcher than the stadium. And you mentioned he played in, in Apollo Grounds, Candlestick Park. He had 660 home 660 home runs, and, and those two parks are obviously very difficult And he missed a season and most of another season because of the war. He could have been seven fifty easy.
0: Yeah. And, you know, people talk about candlestick. Well, if not candlestick, he would have hit, you know, seven, 800 home runs. But the fact is that you look back and do the research, you find out that he actually hit more home runs at home than on the road during his candlestick years. And, you know, that was a product of being familiar with your territory and, knowing the pitchers and seeing the background and everything, which was to his advantage. But so, you know, if that were equal, yeah, I think you have to look back to 52 and 53. He spent all of 53 in the army and from May to the end of the season in 52 in the army. So virtually two full seasons. Now he came out of the army and hit 92 home runs in his first two years. Right. So, conservatively if you think if he hit 60 in those two years he didn't play well he finished with 660 and now suddenly he's got 720
2: and the babe had 714 right i i love also that he his thing was to win he, he didn't even consider himself a home run hitter right he, he right his thing was to win I love when in the book it's mentioned that he he never got into the 40-40 club, which is of course forty steals and forty home runs in a year. And his response to it was, "If I if I knew those were that was important, I would have done it."
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, I was I was in spring training in eighty eight with the A's when Conseco was talking about I want to be the first 40 40-40 guy. I said, "What do you mean? Well, forty homers and forty steals." I said, "Yeah, right, Jose." Okay. And sure enough, he became Mr. 40-40 and was an MVP that year. But Bobby Bonds came one home run away in 73, put a little pressure on himself. But it's something that Mays never really cared about. He reached 40 steals. He reached 40 home runs, but never in the same season. Right. And now it's a deal. Barry Bonds did it. Um, you know, Quite a few players have done it. But in Willie's time, yeah, it wasn't – You had fewer games. and I mean, he hit 50 home runs twice. You know, could steal, what, four or five straight years. He led the National League in steals. So, you know, he was the complete player. But as he says, it wasn't about numbers as much. And again, you know, he he never won a World Series in in San Francisco. But those Giants were pretty good. They had the most wins in the 60s. And Marshall had the most wins of any pitcher in the 60s. But they always finished second. They were second place back when there was no wild card. So it right, right. wins. Well, I'm going home, but not, not until, uh, 2010 when Willie was around, the giants finally win. And, right. and but, but 62, yeah, they went to the world series and they lost one, nothing in game seven. Uh, Mays was stranded on second base with the, with the, uh, tie and run on third, you know, if McCovey's liner to went, went beyond Richardson, that's a walk off hit. And the, the, uh, The Giants would have won that 62 series, but it wasn't meant
3: to be. Right. You mentioned Jackie Robinson earlier and getting a little more uh, issues, civil rights issues. Jackie was kind of critical of, of Willie for not speaking out more, but Willie had his own way of dealing with the civil rights and he was a peacemaker. He brought everybody together. Wasn't outspoken about it, but he did it his way.
0: No, absolutely. Jackie Robinson wrote a book in 1964 and it was an oral history in which he got big leaguers of all colors to weigh in on integration in baseball history. And Ernie, you know, Ernie Banks and Hank Aaron and you know, even, El- even Alvin Dark, white and black. But Mays didn't want to do it, and it just wasn't his thing. He was taught at an early age and including, you know, through the minor leagues by his father not to say anything. I mean, you look at his background, and that's the way it was. You led by example. You huddled with people maybe in the dugout or the clubhouse or behind closed doors. You know, you didn't make waves. I mean, Jackie obviously went to UCLA, married Rachel, served in the military, went to AAA Montreal. Not until his late 20s did he break in with the Dodgers. So Willie was 20, a year out of high school, when he broke in with the Giants. So different stories, but mm-hmm. great stories for both. But Willie was hurt by the words of Jackie Robinson in this book that he didn't do enough for the African American cause, and he never forgot it. But it didn't change him. He didn't start, you know, marching or giving speeches. It's just it wasn't him. But he certainly. It, Basically, so I I read I went back and read that I asked Willie about it, and I said let me let me dig into this, see how factual it is, and if Jackie was right on, and you know I had no disrespect to Jackie obviously, but I just wanted to go to as many people as I could to ask about Willie during the civil rights movement, if 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 he meant something to them, and everybody I went to said absolutely Reggie Jackson and Ma- Maury Wills. And, Frank Robinson, even Hank, who's three years younger, Joe Morgan, who grew up in the Bay Area, his dad taking him out to Seal Stadium to watch him play. They all had stories about how Willie impacted their lives and careers at an early age, but not in the public eye, more in the private eye, by example and by conversations and Morgan telling me that Willie told him about leaving the game better than you found it and respecting all of the stuff that that Joe tried to do throughout his Hall of Fame career. And then Willie's hope was that guys like Joe would pass it down to the next generation. And and that was his thing. I, I spoke with Bill Clinton, who was just wonderful for this chapter, chapter 17. Bill Clinton said that Willie Mays made it absurd to be a racist. Mm-hmm. But, oh, my God, that is wonderful. What a, what a great. And he elaborated and went on and on and on. Just a wonderful speaker and put it all in perspective. And I brought this back to Willie, and you know, he he opened up maybe more on the subject than he had in the past. And but basically, it it, it was it was no knock on Jack, much as maybe a revelation on what Willie actually did do. And this again was this was '64. This was like in the middle of Willie's career. He played it another nine years. So while he was hurt by the words, it, it didn't affect him on or off the field. And he kept trying to be who he was, just helpful, a role model and being there for, for folks. And all these years later, he's writing about life lessons. Yeah.
3: And didn't didn't George Bush, I'm not sure it was senior or junior, say uh, he didn't
0: want to be president. He wanted to be Willie Mays. George W. Bush. Yeah.
3: OK, W. Bush. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Clinton, I interviewed Bush and both of them for about 40 minutes. and. Both of these people, when I was talking to them, I wasn't talking to a Democrat or Republican or a politician. It was just a guy at the end of the bar over a beer talking ball and Willie. And it was just amazing when I look back because these are two guys who were born in the summer of 46, the first uh, baby boomer presidents. And Clinton, when he was 10 years old, his parents bought a black and white TV growing up in Arkansas. And one of the first images young Bill saw was Willie racing across his screen. Years later, he becomes president and invites Willie to the White House. They become friends and golf partners. And Clinton, who was instrumental himself in the civil rights movement and had a lot to say about it, connected the dots with Willie and talked about his indelible images. And, you know, seeing seeing him, if you're like a bigot and you're rooting for Willie Mays, suddenly the bigot questions himself. Well, what am I doing? Am I, you know, how stupid am I? You know, let's, let's redirect here. You know, let's move on. And, and, and you know, according to Clinton, that's what, that's what Mays did. It, Clinton said that, you know, Willie proved Branch Ricky right every day. And, and with George Bush, also from the South, Texas, you know, he was about the same age, 10 or 12, when he went to his first major league game at the polo grounds. His family in Connecticut, his dad's younger brother, so George, you know, young George's uh, uncle took him to the polo ground, to see his first game. And there's Willie, you know, racing across the field. And he fell in love with Willie like Clinton fell in love with Willie right around the same time Then he becomes president, invites Willie to the White House. And they become friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a, more of a baseball family than Bill Clinton. You know, his dad played at Yale in the College World Series. He actually met Babe Ruth. There's a picture. And then young George loves baseball, playing Little League and high school and not as good as his father in baseball. But but, you know, yeah, you're right. He, he said, my, my, you know, he was playing catch with his dad. Think Willie Mays, you know, and he says my goal in life was to be Willie Mays, not the president of the United States. And then fast forward after 9-11, uh, President Bush throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium before game three. And all eyes are on him, and he throws a perfect strike, you know, with all the gear and, and, you know, all alone on the mound, kind of a hectic time. But he throws a strike, and I asked him about that. I didn't even prepare for this question. It just dawned on me because he kept talking about all the times he played catch with his father. And it was kind of reminiscent of my talks with Willie, who learned so much about life and baseball, playing playing catch with his own dad. So I drew the parallel when when I when speaking with him, I said this really reminds me of, of what Willie was telling me. Your your games of catch with your dad, life lessons. And George really opened up, and I, I said and then I, I, I threw the question at him. I said, well, you're on the mound, and I know nothing was in your mind except the moment. But if not for all those games of catch, emulating Willie Mays with your dad, maybe you don't throw a strike. And he said, Yeah. <laughs> and I, well, maybe I put it a little bit more positive. I said, I said, maybe you threw a strike because of all those games of catch you played with your dad. So, uh, so he actually, yeah, we brought that day up uh, uh, in depth uh, in the book. But um, yeah, just an amazing thing. And there's a whole chapter on his relationship with Obama. Um, as mm-hmm. Willie said, imagine a kid from Westfield, Alabama, growing up and sitting with the president.
2: On Air Force One. Air Force One, the, yes. Force also. John, one of the, one, another great thing about this book, and all of our listeners, I cannot, cannot recommend this book anymore. Jeff is yeah, holding it up. It is fantastic. It gets into the mind of this man who is just, I, I think, is the greatest baseball player ever. I, I know people argue, Babe Ruth, I uh, Have reasons. We I know you you spoke to Bob Kendrick. We we also uh, spoke to him just a little while ago. We were talking about that. But I think greatest ever. And I love how you get into his mind. He talks about why he made a basket catch. How he knew you know if he caught it on one side, he was going to throw it this way. That and and the you know deking the runners and and just there's so much detail in this book. And it's just and then. If you if you don't want all that detail, you skip to the next chapter, and, and it's more stories. There's something for everybody in this book. It's history. It's just it's fantastic. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. In
0: fact, in retrospect, it's actually I got the feeling recently that it's like new history. It's like, you know we know about the four home runs, we know the catch in the Polo Grounds, we know about the right. six hundred home runs, but all these years later, Willie's opening up about his career and his life you know, full life lived as well as so many others, many in their 90s and 80s and 70s who, who just remember the stuff like yesterday. And, and, and it's like, wow, this, and, you know, because I, I read stories and I read books about Mays and I kind of see the same old quotes and anecdotes. And I said, man, you know, I, I just didn't want to, that to be the definitive stuff. I, I wanted to branch off and make it current you know, and the race issues certainly make it current, you know, on the, on the field and off, but it, 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 it was wonderful. He gave me the access most of all Mm -hmm. uh, because I spent so many hours at his home here in the Bay area and, and he trusted me and, you know, he never told me what not to write. So, uh, it was, it was just literally an open book and, and it, it just feels like like new history. You know, we, we know the stories, but now you have the details, now you have the why, and the characters maybe come to life a little bit more, because they're out there and they're willing to give me an hour on the phone, whether it's Ralph Terry or Bobby Richardson or Hank Aaron, Mike Trout. I mean, Mike Trout doesn't usually give extensive interviews, but, you know, you, you, everyone's got a maze story. and. And everyone enjoys talking about the man, right?
3: I want to talk about the man, the peacekeeper, because there was an incident. I remember the Marshall Roseboro. I mean, I was too young to actually remember seeing it happen, but you know that's a famous story. But I, what I didn't know was May's role in keeping the peace after that happened. Could you could you explain what happened?
0: Yeah, you know the Giants and Dodgers always went at it, you know, especially in New York. I talked to Vince Scully and. And Mays and Carl Erskine, who, by the way, was warming up right next to Branca, you know, before uh, before the call went to Branca to face Bobby Thompson in 51. And it's just like, oh, my God, this, these minds, these these interviews just blow my mind. But where were we?
3: Willie Mays' role in, in keeping John, the peace between Johnny Roseboro and, yeah. and Mark show
0: Get off on a tangent here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Giants and Dodgers. Uh, like I said, Scully talked about how gruesome it was back in the day. It wasn't San Francisco, L.A. It was borough and borough. And you played so many games against the other New York team, so you never had to travel. You just stayed home and played in Brooklyn, played, played at the polo grounds. And those polo grounds, there was only a door separating the two clubhouses out there in center field, and there were fights all the time. They had to lock the door, Vinny told me, Uh, just so people wouldn't crash through and start beating on each other. (laughs) And at different times, they were always fighting. So fast forward to Candlestick Park, uh, Giants-Dodgers, it was toward the end of a particularly heated series, and it was Koufax versus Marischal. Now, Koufax didn't intentionally try to hit anybody. That was just his gig, right? And Johnny Roseborough was the catcher, and Marischal was wasn't afraid to knock you down, throw inside, you know, brush you back. Um, but, you know, Gibson, Drysdale, they were all like, all the greats did that, right? Maybe yeah. not quite as much. So Roseboro wanted to take it into his own hands. So when Marshall came to the plate and found out that Koufax wasn't throwing at him, Roseboro actually did. And he clipped his ears on a, clipped his ear on a throw back to the, to the mound. And Juan took exception, took his bat and, club Roseboro over the top of the head, something he regretted, you know, forever. Yeah. And, you know, luckily they became friends and learned from it and, and told their stories. But, but in the moment they just wanted to kill each other. Uh, Roseboro wanted to go after him and destroy him, And Marshall had the back. So who grabs them, who gets in the middle, Mr. Mays, who grabs Roseboro's Jersey and pulls them all the way to the Dodger dugout. And you can see pictures. The way Willie tells it, you're right. That's exactly what happened. But imagine Willie Mays in a sea of Dodger blue and nobody, you know, telling Willie, get off him. You know, I'll I'll handle this. Get away from here. Because everyone had so much mad respect for Willie Mays. Um, He wasn't booed at Ebbets Field. He wasn't booed at Dodger Stadium. So it was Mays who was the peacekeeper that day because, you know, Maury Wills looks back now and says that, you know, there could have been riots. You know, at the ballpark, uh, in the streets, uh, it could have really carried over and gotten uglier. But as it turned out, you know, 14 stitches for Roseboro, a 14-minute delay, Marshall suspended the equivalent of starts, and the Giants lost the 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 pennant that year by two games. That's why they always seem to finish second. Something always go wrong. But imagine that. I mean, only 10-game suspension. That would have been a lot longer nowadays. You would have been suspended the the year. But that was, that was, you know, if you look at the 73 playoffs, uh, Willie with the Mets, as you remember, and they played the Reds. Pete Rose and Buddy Harrelson. Yeah. And second big brawl, right? I remember that. Yeah, because Pete <laughs> slid in like he would do in, in, in that time. Harrelson took exception and then went to blows. So nobody gets thrown out of the game, right? That's the way it was. Right. Pete left field. And we're at Chase Stadium, and everybody's throwing stuff at him—whiskey bottles from the upper deck. And the umpire said, "Hey, we're gonna, you, you got to forfeit this game, New York, if uh, if you don't get these fans back in their seats and obedient." So it was May, one of the Mets, who went out there and addressed the fans and told them to cool it. And, and uh, so I talked to Rose about it and others who were there that day. But yeah, it was Mays who was a peacekeeper again. And Cepeda tells me a story. Orlando Cepeda, when he was young. They were, they were playing, I think, in Pittsburgh, and uh, Cepeda was so mad, so heated that he grabbed a bat and was going to go out to the mound and you know go after because the manager was out there, the, the pitcher was out there, and he was just going to go out and take care of business out of nowhere. Flying tackle by Mays brings Cepeda back to the dugout, and Orlando, you know, to this day, continues to thank Willie for what he did that day because that would have been really ugly mm-hmm. if Cepeda you know, got his way and went out to the mound. But there are quite a few examples about May's peacekeeping, uniting, bringing people together. There's one last story I want to tell real quick. Uh, 1964, we're talking about Alvin Dark. Well, Alvin Dark and Willie got along. There were quite a few African-Americans and Latin Americans who didn't dig him at all. Because tough on them. He actually told the Spanish speakers. No Spanish in the clubhouse. Imagine that in 2020. But oh this was boy. before. And the Alu brothers couldn't even do it. And, and Felipe right. asked me, how, how do you think my dad felt when his three sons, my proud father, on one major league team, and, and they can't even speak in, in the club together their, their native language? So, right. But it, they, they all kind of hated Alvin Dark and they were just going to walk out on him. The team was in Pittsburgh, and Mays collected them and and kind of lectured them and said, hey, you're not playing this game for that man. You're playing the game for yourself and for the team. And he obviously put it in the right words so that there was no music and everybody came back. And as it was, Alvin fired at the end of the season. But uh, And and later in life, that's a pretty good story, too. He told me, and Cepeda told me, and uh, Alou told me that that he apologized to all these, you know, later in his life, he apologized to Jose Pagan and Felipe Alou and Orlando Cepeda and Marshall and all these Latin players that were really fed up with him as players. Cepeda said that man cost us penance. That's how bad it was. Mm -hmm. So in the end, as Cepeda and Alou tell me, you know, he didn't want to die with that in his heart. So he went around and apologized to everyone. Anyway, it was Mays who kind of brought that team together and unified them. Whereas it, it
2: could have been real, it could have been worse than it was. John, how, how does a writer get a ballot for the Hall of Fame? And this is mentioned in the book when he's talking. I think he's talking to his his godson Barry Bonds, which is another story in in the book. But and it mentions that he was not unanimous for the Hall of Fame. There was I think twenty something writers Wait, that didn't put him in. Yeah. How How does a writer get a ballot? Jeff and I are always having this conversation and I know this is insane and not vote first ballot for Willie Mays for the whole Fame. It just, I know it it's, it, it, it's, it's, crazy. It was 1979. So, okay.
0: Yeah. The game I covered, he went two for four, a couple of punch outs. So maybe, maybe I'll vote for him next year. And <laughs> That's the time when nobody knew who you were voting for. The writers didn't write these big, sweeping stories about why I voted for this guy, why I didn't vote for that guy. And the BBWA actually publishes all of those who want their ballot published on their website. The Hall of Fame, you know, the, the BBWA is actually, baseball writers actually encouraged the Hall of Fame to change their rules so all the ballots are publicized and transparent. But the Hall of Fame said no. So bbwa doing the second best thing and that's to publish as many ballots as they can get encouraging the writers to put them up on the website and that's what we do but you right this is 1979 and willie mays wasn't unanimous mariano rivera is the only one who's ever been unanimous jeter missed by one everybody's saying how can you vote for jeter well jeter wasn't really mays and, and how can you not vote for mays let's let's go back a ways and you know and ricky Henderson thing 28 people didn't vote for him and all right. throughout
2: his um it, it is it's throughout history but he may be the greatest baseball player ever and 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 somebody's um you know uh, not this year
0: <laughs> and you're not going to vote for next year you know he's in so you're going to go through your whole life saying i didn't get my chance to vote for willie right. i think got the ballot the second year
2: i just I, i'm i'm floored by that that's yes. always something that we discuss John, uh, we
3: really appreciate your time. I got one or two more questions. The book is called Twenty Four Life Lessons and Stories from the Say Hey Kids. John, his, his relationship with Obama, I think Obama gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Is that is, was it Obama who did that? Yeah. He had a very close relationship with Obama. And and my other question is, you spoke to Bush, Clinton, and Obama. What do you how do you get, call these guys on the phone? How do you get to
0: talk to three presidents? <laughs> yeah, see, Dial. Well, yeah. well, actually, if, I, I didn't ask for any favors. I didn't ask to, you to know, connect me, Major League Baseball to connect me. I just went through their foundation, George W. Bush Foundation, the William Clinton Foundation, Barack Obama, and left messages that were ignored, left some more that were ignored. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm not writing this book overnight. And eventually they got in touch through assistance and said, you know, what, what's it about? So, filled in the blanks, let them know. And, you know, months or weeks went by and you know, another try, you know, months and months and months, if not a year or two went by overall. So they finally said, uh, how about Thursday at 6am? I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so 40 minutes later, I have this wonderful interview and boy, those two and, you know, Vince Scully and Bob Costas and Hank Aaron, you know, most most of the time I could just have an outline of questions. But for those, I, I you know, I, I really wrote them out. I wanted to be specific, but, and, and you know, also be free to ad lib, you know, following the, the theme or the tone of the interview. So yeah, that was, that was wonderful. In fact, uh, Willie just signed a couple of books to to send out today to the two ex presidents. <laughs> That's cool.
3: <laughs> yeah. So he has a special relationship with Obama. I know he flew into Air uh, Force yeah. One.
0: So tell us about that. So Willie met Barack Obama when Obama was a senator in Illinois. And you know, the young man Willie, I'm not gonna say take took under his wing, but you know, cherished the kid, right? As he would say, I cherish the kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, went on to become president and and you know, the first African American to to hold the title. And you know, Willie's just Amazed that that he lived to to experience this day, and when you know election night, Willie didn't think it would be like this, but he was worried for Barack Obama's life um, for several hours, and uh, you know not until. The next morning, did he feel comfortable? I said, "Oh, you know, he could exhale." But it's like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, I didn't feel that way. I, I don't, I don't know how you felt, but you know, Willie Mays and his past and his, his experiences and every, you know, what he went through. Wow, it, it's amazing he felt that way. And uh, you know, I had to respect the way he felt that way and write about the, uh, it all. And it was just so touching. But yeah, you're right. And then they became like buddies. Um, uh, again, you know, invite. White House, but uh, Willie made three visits with the Giants, ten and twelve and fourteen, that won the World Series. So while he knew him, uh, remember Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope. Well, Mm -hmm. he was in San Francisco once, and they made a swap. Willie gave him a signed ball, and Barack Obama gave him a signed book, and that's how they knew each other before the presidency. And then when they when he became president, you know, one of his famous lines that he repeated over and over was was you know if not for folks like Willie Mays you know folks like me would never have a chance to become you know president and hang out in the white house in, in washington dc so you know it's, you know it's a sweeping inspiration that that willie has provided over the course of his life and career when the president of the united states uh, is uh, will pick up the phone and and talk about him and talk about how you know they were you know for for Clinton and Bush talk about in their younger years they were influenced by the man and then Obama who quite a bit younger not necessarily into baseball like the other two you know spoke about how Willie was an influence because of the color of his skin and the life he lived and presidents of the United States talking about this man so so again everyone has a Willie May story
3: yeah. I, I love the story in the book where you said that he's on Air Force One. You know how big Willie Mays is, that the reporters want to speak to Willie Mays and not the president of the United States when they're on Air Force One. <laughs> They'd love that.
0: All the reporters on Air Force One wanted to talk to Mays.
2: Yeah. Another little thing in the book, I like to find these little tidbits. Terry Cashman, who is not his name, I forget what his actual name is, but the, who wrote the baseball song, you know, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. I never realized until you, you put it that his favorite was Willie because he at the end he goes, say hey, say hey, say hey. <laughs> yeah, Dennis
0: Minogue, uh, who played a couple years in the minor leagues and, you know, later changed his name, became a musician and wrote uh, Willie, Mickey and the Duke. And was living back in New York when those guys were, you know, visiting on business or had an apartment or whatever. So they all knew each other. Cashman got to know them and they appeared at functions or press releases, whatever. But, uh, yeah, that, that was in the Willie, Mickey and the Duke chapter. He's saying, he, yeah, Willie, Mickey and the Duke and Willie was his favorite because, uh, you know, as a 10-year-old, uh, you know, he, go, he went to the polo grounds and idolized Mays. I mean, it seems like the, I'm telling the same story over and over. It doesn't matter if you're... <laughs> well, there's, plenty of, there, there's plenty, of,
3: plenty of stories in 24. Oh, yeah. Life, lessons, life stories and lessons from the Say Hey Kid John, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We can go on all night. People should yeah. get the book. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful book. I want to thank yeah, you for thank your time. You. Appreciate
0: it. Yeah, this was fun. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thanks a lot, guys.
3: Thank you very much, John. Len, I can talk all night about Wooly Mays. Now, I love that interview. <laughs> Anytime we talk Wooly maze, you can go on all night.
2: Maybe. Maybe the best Player, I I think, as we said in the interview, everyone always says Babe Ruth. I, I'm sorry. I think Willie Mays may be greatest player ever.
3: Yeah, definitely. And now let's hear from our rocket scientist, Doug Shining, on who's from Rogue Barbecue.
2: Our guest tonight has gone rogue, rogue cookers. That is. We are so excited because for the very first time, we've had people from the world of barbecue, people from the world of baseball, professional players, announcers, actors. But for the first time, we're having our very first rocket scientist on baseball (laughs) and barbecue. This man is a true Renaissance man. Not only is he the longest running embedded correspondent on the Barbecue Central show, he's also a Traeger Grill user, a Chicago Cubs fan, and a Barbecue World Champion, and a Head Country Brand Ambassador, and, as I said before, a rocket scientist with a degree in aerospace engineering. We could not be happier. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. Doug Shining,
1: thank you so much. Your intros are always so good, so good.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: <laughs> and he'd even let you on being uh, a Cubs fan, so you know. <laughs> I know that was actually one of the the top ones. It was near the top of the list. That was good, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, it's that's okay. I'll give your meds a little love in uh, <laughs> in the course of this interview. So not a problem.
2: You know, we'll get to that. But it, it's funny because. You have a voice that's very recognizable if you listen to the Barbecue Central show, and I am a big fan of that show. I've always said that is the show that we try to, you know, at least half the show, because we are baseball and barbecue, (laughs) that we try to, you know, to live up to, and of course that's unique in itself, but I hear you on that show, and now I'm 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 looking at you and I'm listening to your voice and I've seen your videos that you make your cooking videos and you know you had well, I saw one video giving you advice on having a cookout. Doug, you have a, a voice that you just don't forget. Do you, do you ever run into people and they say I've I've heard you before? Like, yeah, that
1: yeah, I I do I do so, but thank you for that. Yeah, I don't really know. It's not. It's not as unique as Greg Rimpy's, you know, voiceover guy that, you know, says the malfeasance of the barbecue world, you know, <laughs> the embedded correspondence or the, the mountain of Rushmore. You know, that guy's on, uh, you know, West TV and ESPN and stuff like that. But uh, thank you for that. So, yeah, Greg's show is, I mean, I'm part of the reason I'm in barbecue cooking is because of Greg's show. I started listening in 2008. So I, uh, his show was entertaining to me. You know he, you know he likes to emulate and loves Howard Stern and Jim Rome and those are people that I like and mm-hmm. part of the reason is is that they're good at interviewing people and right. they've done their homework in the same way that I I see that you've done some homework as well <laughs> so I I appreciate that very much thank you yes we
2: uh, I I am a big Howard Stern fan and also I, I enjoy Jim Rome but. So we we try to get to that level. We'll, we'll try to get first to the Greg Grempy <laughs> level. And, yeah. then, and then we'll go from
1: there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Greg is OCD about a lot of things. And one of the major things is sound. You know, right. if you know him, he is all about his sound. And he's on us for sound and improving and making sure that we sound okay. And we'll even do test calls and things like that before the show. And, you know, if, if any of the gear has changed. So I'm like this... The simple sound guy, John has, you know, the, he does the production of the barbecue, you know, the best right. moment, of the barbecue central show. And so, yeah, but anyway, it's been a great, you know, being a part of that show. So it's been a lot. And so I get a lot of people that have heard me on that show and I'll meet them at, you know, the NBBQA, the National Barbecue Cooking Association. And they'll say, oh yeah, I've heard you. And I'm like, oh yeah, 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 I am on that show. So yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Well, how would you get to that show how, I mean you you started as a listener, but how did you end up now as an embedded correspondent?
1: well, yeah, so you know like I said, I started in in two thousand and eight when I, I got into cooking, and his show was one of the shows he used to do these round tables, and I used to you know the round table where you'd have you know people that are top ranked in in KCBS, um and they would have ribs and brisket and you know the different meat categories. I would listen to him two, three, four times, and eventually I actually, you know, started competing in in 2009. and then when I won the world championship at uh, Houston Rodeo in 2015, he 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 interviews most of the people that win, like the American Royal, the Jack Daniels, Memphis and May, and uh, the Houston Rodeo. So those are the 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 top four world championships, you know, kind of like in golf and tennis. And, you know, those are the majors. And so that was my first time to actually be on the show being interviewed. And after the interview, he contacted me and he said I had good energy and a good interview. And he was that year he was trying to break out of uh, being Kansas KCBS only. He was mainly KCBS, did a little bit of the Florida Barbecue Association, some of the uh, NBN MBN the Memphis uh, barbecue network, but uh, didn't have much of a presence in Texas. So he said, I'm, this is my year. I'm going to concentrate on Texas. So will you help me get guests and topics and news? And so I would come on periodically that, that first six months or so and, and give him ideas for guests as well as, Hey, these are the things that are going on. And, in uh, IBCA cooking, you know, which is basically our a Texas organization that's primarily based here. And so we would, uh, at that time, he was more competition-oriented. He's kind of changed, you know, so he's more broad, backyard, and uh, more broad uh, over the last three, four years. But uh, that's how I actually got started, is from that interview in in February, end of February of
3: 2015. Well, Doug, tell us, how did you get started into this barbecue world, barbecue cooking world, and I'd call them rogue cookers.
1: Well, yeah, that, that, there's two questions there. So, how, how I got started in the in the barbecue world? Actually, I used to be known as microwave boy. I would not, <laughs> you know, if it if it took longer to make than to eat, it wasn't worth the time. Yeah. And and so, you know, I was always the microwave. But uh, uh, I was I used to watch Food Network Star. You know, if if you're you know Food Network. And Aaron McCargo, you know, Aaron McCargo, Big Daddy's House, he won season four. And uh, he's from New Orleans, big personality, et cetera. I had just cleaned my uh, battery cables on my car on Saturday, and I saw his show on Sunday, and it was on ribs. And in his his ribs, he put Coke. When he wraps them, he puts Coke in there, and I'm like, well, dang! I just cleaned some battery terminals. I bet you that would tenderize some meat. So the kind of the science of that kind of got 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 me interested. So that next weekend, I made racks of ribs using coke and put it in put it in the oven. And I'm like, hey, this is pretty good. And so you know, in terms of that's actually what got me cooking. And then baseball, as it relates a little bit to baseball, we started a throwdown at our. Live fantasy baseball draft, so that next year I did I cooked my ribs. Someone else cooked. We cook ribs and go go head to head against each other, and he won two to one. But I really liked the smoke flavor that he had on his ribs, so I said okay. So then that's actually what kind of got me into uh, into smoking is that that throwdown. And a neighbor asked me to participate in a charity. Content, competition, um, you know, maybe a couple months later. Yeah, it was about four or five months later because I had been practicing and been cooking on drums, ugly drum smokers, the vertical drums. Um, I actually made them for a while. And uh, he asked me to help participate in that charity. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, do you have a grill and you know, a pit? And he's like, no. So I we borrowed a neighbor's pit, and so then I was in, and so then we we practiced for a couple of months. And in that uh, first contest, we. Uh, it was about 53 teams and we wound up finishing second in ribs. We got a belt buckle in Texas. It's all about the belt buckles. you right. Mm-hmm. I, I could care less about, you know, the trophies and stuff. And, you know, I want the belt buckle. So he got he got a belt buckle for ribs, second place in ribs at like 53 teams. I got a third place in brisket, even though we had a grease fire at 2 a.m. Uh, we had the, the pit the, going the wrong way, so the grease was draining into the firebox. And so at 2 o'clock, we heard the sizzle, but got third place, and we wound up getting third place overall. Beat three barbecue restaurants that were there and, you know, people. And so then that's when the hook was set. And so then we started cooking together. So I cooked with him for about uh, four and a half uh, years or so. And so we cooked as a, as a team. And then, yeah, then. Uh, and then cook cookers a born. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I, I, it was a team and, and uh he, he was gone for one contest. Actually the San Antonio rodeo, which has about 300 teams. It's a really large one. Uh, probably you know, probably one of the top five in terms of number of teams. And so he was gone. And so I was the cook and I was cooking. We had a nice offset, a a gator pit. It's a real nice offset. It's about 8,000 bucks made in Houston. A lot of the grills, nice grills are made in in, uh, Texas anyway. So I was cooking and I was, you know, and uh, my brisket that night, I had a phone on my chest and every 20 minutes I had the alarm going, going off and I go and see, I see what, you know, how big of a piece of wood I need to stick in there. But, um, short story long, I wound up finishing 16th in, in chicken and second in brisket and fourth overall at that contest. And so when he came back, he, uh, I had told him that night and after I a few, uh, Cokes I'd say, yeah, that I didn't cook the team recipe. He's like, well, at least we cooked the team recipe. I said, no, I cooked my recipe that got fourth two years before. And, and he's like, okay. And so then when we got together as a team, as team members, myself, him and our wives together, we, I, that's where I was giving him the banner and stuff that we had won. And, but they didn't talk about barbecue for 30 minutes. And so I was like, something's up. Something's weird. They were even poured Camus wine. And I was like, okay. And so I turned down the second glass of of Camus wine and basically he, uh, he, he pointed his finger at me and he said, when you made the rogue decision to cook (laughs) your own recipe is when you decided you're no longer part of this team. I'm like, okay. I said, you're telling, you know, we should, dis, we should have discussed this. And I uh, said, babe, get your shit. Let's go. And uh, so then as, as we were leaving, yes, as we were leaving, I was like, well, you know, what, what should I, you know, you know, cause he lives in my neighborhood, but we, we were driving away and she goes, he gave you the name Rogue cookers. And I'm like, yes, of course he did. So the next contest, which was a couple months later, I had my trailer wrapped. I had hats, I had shirts, and so that's how rogue cookers, because right. I do kind of like to tweak things. I like to do whatever the hell I want. And so in the end, it was one of the best things that happened to me in my cooking career. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> <laughs> so we're friends now. So yeah. So, and yeah, but all's good now.
2: Yeah. I, part of the fun of it is, is, you know, doing different things, tweaking. And although I have to say when I cook now, if well now we never have people over because you know, we're it's the pandemic, but right. When we used to, and you know, you, you'd have people come over and I'm sure you've become famous for your ribs or your chicken or something that when people come over, they always want that same food probably. Yes. Yeah. Right. And like, I remember making it a little different. Well, this this seems different than the way you made it Why don't you make it the other way? Why do you do that? <laughs> it's yes. so then how how does your involvement with traeger grills come around
1: well when when i won the world championship at at houston they 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 took note they really didn't know who i was but so i'd been cooking exclusively on traeger and i was i think the first one to really cook in texas or at least on the competition circuit here in south texas totally on traeger on, on a pellet grill you know, so, you know, we're men and you know, beat your chest and we're sure you know, they got to stay up all night, drink beer, and you know, anyway, but, uh, fair, bro,
4: yeah, bro, bro. Yeah,
1: exactly, ex- exactly. <laughs> well, you know, if I can say, you know, some of them, so I cooked on pellet grills for, for a bit, and and you know, they, uh, I guess I can say it, yeah, they, they used to call me the one nut cooker because I gave up one of them to, to cook on pellet grills. But so anyway, so I was, I was kind of infamous in, in the beginning, but so then when I won Houston, Traeger asked if they could use my name in a press release for an announcement for a, an event that they were going to have as part of the American Royal, because when you win Houston, you get a, a an entry to the American Royal, the invitational and the open, you know, they do two, And then, and then also the Jack Daniels, which is by invitation only, you know, a hundred teams. So I told him, yeah, sure. You can use my, use my name. And then they had a contest up there at the American Royals and they were giving prizes a thousand bucks and a trophy for the best uh, Traeger cookers, you know, so you had to enter. And so I actually wound up being the best uh, pork of all things, the pork cooker at the American Royal and, and wound up getting like 24th in pork. there out of 600 teams when we were there. So, um, that was pretty good. And then I got like 20 something in beans and stuff. And so, so then they took notice of me and then when we went uh, again and then they, we started talking about coming on as a consultant and then at the Jack Daniels that same year we uh, went and we got first place in chef's choice and where we cooked actually steak, and uh, Hassleback potatoes. Some things, we did it because it was easy, not because we really thought we were going to win, but sometimes the simple things, you know, keep it simple and it does better. So after that, they uh, they decided that they wanted me to come on and teach some classes. And so then I started a formal relationship with them with a, you know, contract and and things. So um, uh, so I, I teach classes for them. I do events. You know, sometimes we, you know, probably one of the best ones was going backstage to cook at Zach Brown. You know, it has had one of his concerts and stuff. And um, this year we did the ESPN game day with Texas and LSU played up in Austin. So we cooked for the uh, the ESPN staff and stuff. So, so we do events and, and do things. And one of the things about be cooking on a Traeger is um, rather than, you know, it's, it's not a fire management contest. So the Traeger takes that away or whatever pellet grill you have. Even a drum will do that if you cook on a drum once you get it settled. But I work on recipes. So I probably have 25 recipes out there. Traeger, I've got 11. I've got probably 10 or so, 11, yeah, with uh, Head Country. And then I just started publishing some to, to, to Robin Lindar's Grill Girl. If you know her, Greg, she's on Greg's show. So I just started publishing some there. So I like the recipe development. And my, 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 approach to cooking is science oriented, obviously being an aerospace, you know, recovering aerospace engineer, you know, like a recovering CPA, but, you know, so I, I like to tweak one variable. Like you, you were saying, Lynn, in terms of why didn't you cook, you know, cook it this way or that way. I'm different than a lot of cookers. I cook food that I like and turn in a lot of competition cookers don't like the food that they turn in because they, they're really just trying to, you know, for one bite, et cetera. Texas is different than Kansas City, KCBS. KCBS has cert, certified judges. Texas IBCA, we have people off the street. It could be, you know, Bobby Sue and Billy Joe and John and April, you know, just people that are, that they volunteer to come. So it's just anybody. And so, you know, their palate's... Sh- probably are about the same, same as mine. And so I like to cook the way I do, but in my cooking, I'll tweak one variable at a time. So I will change one rub. I'll change one injection on the brisket or, or, you know, cause usually on a brisket, I use three rubs and use, use a combination for the injection or stuff. So I'll just do different things. Like on my ribs, going back to Aaron McCargo, I still use Coke is my wrap uh, in in the wrap of my ribs and I've tried dr. Pepper I've tried you know big red I've tried ma- you know mountain dew I've tried all kinds of you know uh, all kinds of different things but I, I still use that so um, uh, that's what I do now is I, I tweak recipes whether it's competition or um, you know some other recipe. My queso recipe has really been popular lately so Matt Pittman of meat Church. Uh, posted a video co- cooking my recipe, and it it kind of went uh, went wild. So, nice, very good. Yeah, I see some of your recipes
3: on the Traeger website. You have a yeah. whole bunch of them listed there.
2: Doug, I think probably you were talking about pellet grills. It's probably at least pellet grills. They let you live in Texas. If you mentioned gas grills, <laughs> you'd you'd be living in New York probably. <laughs> they would they would yeah. run you out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, hey, and I'm all for it. If people want to use gas grills in a competition, more power to them. Bring it on. If they can, yeah. But uh, yeah, 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 no. I have a $2,000, uh, well, $3,000 gas grill that I never use. So wow. sitting out back, and so that I built a concrete countertop around it, and so that I'm not. My wife wants to give it away, and I said no. I built the, you know, the, the countertop. But yeah, I haven't cooked on a gas grill, and I can't remember how long. So.
2: It's funny. We had on Ed Randolph and uh, we actually, we just released that episode. And he just, you know, he of course wrote the book Smoked. And then his most recent one is he wrote for Traeger, you know, recipes for Traeger. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, you're, you're going to cost me a lot of money because the book itself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I the book, but now I got to buy a trade too.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, I just listened to that, re- uh, that, uh, that show on Tuesday. I ride my bikes now instead of going to the gym. And so I listened to that show. So yeah. Handsome devil barbecue, Ed Randolph. Yes, absolutely.
3: Right. Yeah. You know, he had a, a great story How He came up with his, his name and you said, well, suddenly yes. you, I mean, great yes, story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. His daughter, I think called him handsome devil. Or yeah. Something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I remember that. So yeah, I'm going to buy that book. I had seen, I had seen and heard about that book, but then listening to it, I'm like, okay, I've got to, I've got a.
4: We did it. Read this. Part. <laughs> yes. We did. It.
1: Uh, okay. a commission. Here, here, here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where's the, the link that I can buy it through your website? Sort <laughs> right. of thing, you know, kind of like Meathead does. Right. But, uh, yeah, I am okay. When I go on vacation, I'm i no, i probably have 40 barbecue books. Last year we went on vacation. You know, when you could go on vacation, I'm the guy that we go to Mexico, and I've got a book. I've got a pen in my, and I've got a highlighter and I read the book. I take notes, dog ear stuff. And so, yeah, that's me by the pool. And uh, my wife goes, you're such a nerd. You can't take the engineer out of you. You are such a nerd. And, but, but it's relaxing to me to do that. So, but uh, that's great. So. When you're on vacation, do you seek out barbecue places? Or well, you need to change,
3: change it up a little.
1: I, I, if I'm, I will go to name places. You know, like so in you know Kansas City, Arthur Bryant's, or you know uh, GQ in Denver, you know Bob Gibson or whatever. You know, so if it's a name type place, I'll go to it. Yeah, I'll go to it. But you know, I, I'm one of. The, I think the yeah Danielle or D, uh, Diva Q, she she actually goes to any and all of them. And, you know, she just tried, no, nah, I don't, I don't, yeah. You know, I, I don't want to eat bad barbecue if I don't have to. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I am a bar- barbecue snob to a certain degree. So I, I definitely am. So, Are you
2: waiting in line for hours and hours for, no, I was going to say for Franklin's or any, is any barbecue worth waiting? Is any food worth waiting that many hours? I just... When, when people hear about the lines at Franklin's and other places where they're waiting for, you know, three, four, yeah. five hours, that's insane.
1: No, it is insane. And, and to me, you know, no offense to Olive Garden, hopefully they're not a sponsor of your show. It, <laughs> Joe, it would drive me crazy when these chains and Olive Garden would have these, all these people waiting. And I am just like, no, I don't like to wait for food. And, but I have waited for barbecue one time, and it was about 30 minutes. And, you know, down here we've got the Texas Monthly Top 50, you know it's a big deal Daniel Vaughn uh, you know is the the bar full time barbecue writer for Texas Monthly and they, they every 4 years they could come out with a, a a top 50 and i knew this one restaurant was going to was going to be in the top 50 so we went the sunday before it was released on monday and and there was a line out front it's in their first location it was truth barbecue in Brenham Texas and so i, I there was a line. I'm like, ah, babe, let's go. You know, we were on the way back from Houston. We took a, you know, side, side trip to it. And, and she goes, no, we're here. Just go ahead and wait. So I waited. And, and uh, the ribs actually were the best ribs I've ever had. And I've ever from any competitor, you know, maybe that was just a great day or whatever, but, or maybe that's how good their ribs are. But uh, yeah, they were fantastic. And then they wound up being, I think it was like 10th the, you know, in as a first time in the, in the list. And so, yeah, now I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't wait in line. So yeah. Cause at yeah, Killen's, you know, Ronnie Killen's barbecue and Louie Mueller's and things like that. Yeah. If, if there's a line, I I'm, I'm not really for that, but I have tasted uh, Franklin's bar, brisket. He actually cooked with Tuffy Stone at the Houston rodeo in 2016. And so he was, he was, if you know, Stone, the professor obviously for right, TV and right. everything. So he, uh, yeah, he he was there helping him. And then uh, then the Texas Texas has a barbecue fest, and they have about 40, 50 different barbecue joints from around the the and Texas Monthly puts this on, and where you can go and sample a lot of these these, you know. So you get like little bites, which is perfect. So we had Franklin's, it was good. But Snow's you know, Snow's, which is actually now number one, you know, Tootsie. And man, she is built, she's built like a linebacker. She is tight. She's just solid. But yeah, her brisket was the best that uh, it was a little better than, in my opinion, than, than Aaron Franklin's. But uh,
2: Jeff, I, I know you're dying to ask him Cub questions. Right? Yeah. I know <laughs> <who> you are.
3: <laughs> We're in this little baseball talk here, a little a shortened season,
1: 60, 60 games. How do you think your Cubs are going to be doing? You know, I I noticed that they've been moving up a little bit in the uh, the the rankings, but you know because they were picked to finish like third or fourth in in the division, and I was like, the the pitching may be a problem, you know. So we you know the pitching is is you know with Darvish and Lester, and you know it's 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 not the young guns in terms of their starting rotation. You know, Kyle Hendricks is probably their best pitcher. Oh, uh, and he pitched a he, hell of know, an opening day there. He did, and he's been good for uh, for a while, but, you know, and, and, you know, Kimbrell, I don't know if you saw Kimbrell's first outing. Man, he, he th- it was something like he threw 47 pitches and only 12 or strikes, and the scatter plot of of uh, the diagram, where all is, it was like, wow, you know, so, yeah, hopefully he'll, he'll come around, but, you know, the Cubs, you know, haven't had a good closer in a, in a while, you know, they had the, the one gentleman last year that got hurt, and, you know, the last couple of years and stuff. And so, yeah, pitching has been their, their Achilles heel. So.
3: Yeah. So how, how's the guy from Texas uh, like the Cubs? I mean,
1: you have the uh, Rangers down there, you have the Astros. Growing up, I liked the big red machine and I love Sparky Anderson and, you know, uh, so so I, I kind of followed those. But when when I moved here, I used to play tennis. I used to play a lot of tennis. Actually, I've played at the uh, Flushing Meadows one time oh. uh, at the U.S. Open Courts uh, International Tournament. But um, yeah, I um uh, So I can't play tennis anymore because I blew out my knee. So I've got a torn meniscus and that's one of the reasons I love to compete. And that's one of the reasons I do barbecue competition, barbecue. So I'll do 12 to 15 contests a a year, but my doubles partner, this is going back to the early nineties was a dirty bird Cardinal fan. So, so, you know, I was like, okay, you know, so I'm like, so what, you know, as an antagonistic type personality, (laughs) which I am, I was like, oh, the Cubs. I kind of like the Cubs. And it was just a hot button with him. So then I started really liking, you know, I got my Cubs shirt, world Championship <laughs> shirt. You know, I, I admit I cried when they won. But, yeah, so I, I started liking the Cubs and, and rooting for the Cubs. And then, you know, in fantasy baseball, I would draft a lot of Cubs, and you, know, you which is the wrong thing to do. You should never draft your own team, that the team that you like in fantasy baseball. So I tried not to draft in, Although I have Chris Bryant this year, but so I try not to draft any any of uh, any of the Cubs in, but I always wind up doing some. So yeah, I've and we our fantasy baseball league has been going on for twenty years. This is our twentieth year. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's been a long time. Great.
2: Wow. You know this. I mean, this is a wacky season anyway. Who even knows if they're going to finish it out? Now you've got the Marlins half the team testing positive for COVID. Now you've got a couple of Phillies, not players, but coaches. And, of course, the Yankees didn't travel to their game because they were going to be in the same locker room that, I guess.
1: The the, well, yeah, the Marlins, I think the Marlins were playing the Phillies, right? And yeah. so, yeah, so then the Yankees were going to go and Play be in that same locker room with the Phillies. And so now okay. that's, been, that's been postponed. I haven't heard of any Phillies. Have uh, you know have tested positive, but but uh, what fourteen fifteen of the Marlins did? So yeah, yeah. it's it, I'm not because, sure because
2: so many games are now being I mean they're delayed, canceled, whatever. So how they and and of course when people are listening to this, it'll probably be we'll know if there's a season <laughs> we'll no pretty soon. But they just I don't know they, but they're not leaving themselves any time to make up games no. Playing, you know, sixty games in what, like sixty-five days, sixty-seven. Yeah, days.
1: it's only like seven days off. I think yes. is all they have. Seven yeah. days, and yeah. So, up? I I don't know. I, I really don't know. So, yeah, it's it, it's going to be a, a weird season, and you know, and, and even for all sports, whether it's baseball, football, or, or, or whatever, you know. So maybe the you know being in the bubble, the NBA, that might work, you know. But uh, you know, football, foot, you know. Baseball is the least contact sport. So you would think right. you would think it, it, it wouldn't be as bad, but um, yeah, so it, it, it's off to a bad start. That's for sure. Unfortunately.
2: Yeah. It's good yeah. to see games. I mean, it is good to see some games, but all right. So that was part one of Doug Shiding, rocket scientist, barbecue expert, just great interview. Hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. I cannot wait for two weeks so I could find out how that interview ends because I really enjoyed it. Sorry that we had to make it a two-parter, but you know what? It's going to be worth it to listen to the second part in two weeks. Really great guy. And Jeff, as I've said so many times, one of the best things about this podcast is the people that we meet. And John Shea and Doug Shining were two fantastic people. So glad that we had the opportunity to speak to them.
3: Totally agree, Len. Totally agree. And with that, we will see you in back in two weeks.
2: And now we have baseball always brings you home from our friends Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski.